I want to start this morning in an unusual way, at least unusual for me. And if, if this thing isn't working properly, someone can come up and adjust it. I seem to have a gift of wrecking the microphone system wherever I go, or it falls off or something. Anyway, um, yeah, I want to preface what I want to say this morning just by saying this. Uh, we were in uh, a large city in the United States several months ago, and uh, my wife Elaine got up in right in the middle of the worship time. There she is up on the stage, and she said, uh, the ship is about to set sail, and uh, the ship is this church, and, you know, if you uh, are not committed and uh, are thinking of leaving, then now is your opportunity. And I thought, well, I'm never going to get invited back here again. Uh, but uh, if you're staying, this is a time really to get committed because God is going to do something. And uh, later after the service, uh, a couple called, uh, phoned us and said, can we come and see you? So they came around the next day, and they were founding members of the congregation. Uh, and they said... Uh, Seven years ago, when we came here to be part of planning this church, uh, we were given a prophetic word. And the prophetic word was, the ship is about to sail, you need to be on it. And my wife and I had decided we couldn't, uh, for various reasons, uh, we couldn't take living in this city anymore, the pressures, etc. It wasn't anything to do with the church. And we decided to leave and go back to where we came from. But after hearing this word this morning, we've canceled our plans and we're staying. And uh, I felt that, um, I still feel that this thing is about to fall off my ear. But anyway, maybe I should have more faith. Um, I was thinking about this in the worship this morning. And I felt that God gave me this uh, word for Lifehouse, which is that this is not a cruise liner. It's a battleship. And there are some folk that are here, some that you know are listening online, or some that may listen to it later that can't be here this morning. And in your mind, your concept of church is cruise liner. It's you take a cruise, and you'll take the smorgasbord, whatever you want. Uh, you'll enjoy it, and then you'll just hop off at the end of the cruise. Uh, and I feel the Lord wants to adjust graciously your viewpoint. This is not a cruise liner, it's a battleship. And you're to present yourself for service. And you may say, well, I, I don't really feel I have very much to offer. Well, you know, God can do a lot with a little, but he can do everything with nothing. So if you're nothing, you're qualified. You just offer yourself. As a decision you have to make is to say, I am not going to be a cruise ship passenger that's just on it for a short time. I'll take everything I can get out of it, gain a few pounds, and then hop off until I find another cruise ship to go on. You're here for service to the King of Kings. And every one of you is qualified to do that. So uh, that's my encouragement to you this morning. I'm a little more gracious than my wife is when it comes to the prophetic because I do actually want to get invited back to places. 
you. <laughs> I'd like to um, read a few, a few verses uh, this morning out of First uh, Kings chapter 19. And the message this morning is titled, The Thin Silence of God, and it's about Elijah. Now, we, you know, if you've been around church at all, you, you all know the story of Elijah and his famous battle on top of Mount Carmel, whether, where he gathers all the prophets of Baal and so on, and there's this big shootout, and uh, Elijah wins, and the prophets of Baal meet a, a very untimely end. And then uh, the story carries on, and uh, I pick it up, and I'm just going to read a few verses uh, in beginning of, of 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how that he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do me, and more also, if I do not make your life as, the one, of the, as one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. And an angel touched him and said, Rise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Rise and eat, the journey is too great. And he rose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now back in 1994 through 1996, that's ancient history. A lot of you here weren't even born then. Uh, we lived through an extraordinary visitation of God right here in the city of Toronto, not more than, you know, a couple of miles from where we are right now. And uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of people came to the Toronto Airport Church from all over the world. Elaine and I were privileged to be on the ministry team. We prayed for countless people, hundreds and hundreds of people over that period of time. We drove, an, I don't know how many miles, up and down the highway from, from Toronto to Mississauga up to Owen Sound where we lived often coming home in the early hours of the morning because we'd be praying for people till well after midnight. And our own church was radically affected. Instead of hacking away at getting people to attend services, we couldn't get people to leave. Uh, but a couple of years later, I found myself in just a place of despair after people we'd poured our lives into, some of them for years, people who had been really affected by the moving of the Holy Spirit, just dropped out to go nowhere. And one day, I found myself walking down the driveway, taking the garbage out. And I realized I, I was in such a hopeless predicament that I didn't even know if I could get to the end of the driveway or not. I hope I'm, somebody here can relate to me. I'm not the biggest loser. But, uh, and in that moment, I thought God speak to me. Isn't it funny how God can speak to you at the most desperate moments? And God spoke to me in that moment and said, just put one foot ahead of another. I, I wish he'd said, I've solved all your problems, you know, but he didn't. He said, just put one foot ahead of another. And somehow I got to the end of the driveway 
And somehow, bit by bit, day by day, week by week, and month by month, things turned around. And in that little, small voice, that low whisper that God, of God speaking to me, um, that was what I needed. And that's what this message is about. Now, by the word of the Lord through the prophet Elijah, if you read the whole context of the story, there had been no rain in the land for three years. And then the word of the Lord came again to him. The drought was about to end. Through Elijah, God had been controlling the weather of the nation. And if in an agricultural economy, uh, God had been controlling the nation because when he controls the weather, he controls everything else in the economy. And that was God's judgment on the wicked rule of King Ahab and his, his wife Jezebel. Now, Elijah, during this period of time, had been in hiding, and God had kept him miraculously. Uh, every time Ahab sent some, a party of soldiers to try to find him, fire fell from heaven, and they were burnt to a crisp. And, but then all of a sudden, Elijah has a word from God, and God says, go show yourself to the king. And... Uh, and he has this meeting. And in the meeting, he sets up the confrontation on Mount Carmel between himself and the prophets of Baal and Asherah. There were 450 prophets of Baal. There were 400 of Asherah. And the prophets of Asherah were a bit smarter than the prophets of Baal because they never showed up in the end. But Elijah was facing great odds, one against, you know, 450. And so... The story unfolds as one of the most vivid and powerful accounts in the Bible of the confrontation of good and evil. And you know the story, if you know anything about your Bible, uh, Elijah makes an offering, these hundreds of prophets make an offering, and Elijah said, the God who answers by fire, he is God. So let's, let's see what happens. And, uh, and so... Uh, uh, the prophets of Baal tried everything they could. Nothing happened. And then Elijah goes and pours water out to make things more difficult on his offering. And he, he asks God to send fire. The fire comes down. And that's the end of the prophets of Baal. Now, you know, Elijah took a risk. Because if it had been equal and there had been no fire on either offering, it was Elijah that was going to get sliced to pieces for sure. So he really needed God to show up. Is it? God can be annoying, can't he? <laughs> you know, he puts you out at the end of your tether and makes you in a place of dependency. Well, that's God's prerogative. And that's, that's what happened with Elijah. So at that moment, following the, the um, episode with the offering being burnt up, Elijah then pronounces the end of the drought. He tells Ahab, you better get in your chariot really fast because the rain is coming there had been no rain for three years. And Ahab barely gets back to the city before it starts to rain. So after all of that, it looked like the battle was over. But it wasn't. It wasn't. Because Jezebel operated in an extraordinary measure of demonic power. Witchcraft. And so the supernatural was normal for Jezebel. And we, we, we find difficulty in our you know, supposedly sophisticated Western culture 
And some of you don't come from Western culture. Some of you have come from other parts of the world, so you're smarter than, than some of us are uh, that were born here many, many years ago. And uh, we in the West, in Western, North American, European, cult, that sort of culture, we have been taught for 300 years that the only things that are real are what you can touch and taste and see and access with your five senses. And we're not aware of a whole supernatural world out there. Uh, but that wasn't the world that Ahab and Jezebel lived in. Jezebel uh, wasn't, uh, she, wa she wasn't so much um, terrified by Elijah's victory on Mount Carmel as she was absolutely enraged. And so she orders Elijah's execution. That's, that's the point where I started reading. Now, at that very moment, something that you'd think was going to happen didn't happen. Now, think about it. Elijah had lived his whole life, as far as we know in Scripture, his whole adult life anyway. He'd lived it by hearing the word of the Lord. God had spoken to him. Every significant event in his life, he heard the word of God, he stepped out in faith, and God showed up. But at this very moment, coming off of this incredible victory, where you would hear, where you would expect that Elijah would have absolutely no problem hearing God, he didn't hear God. And it says that he was consumed by fear and ran for his life. Isn't that strange? Isn't that, that's weird. Uh, the day before, he's up on top of the mountain facing 450 demoniacs, and he's not scared. Now he's scared. It shows us one thing at least. If faith is the key, which it is, to triumph over fear, then fear is the greatest obstacle to our being able to hear from God. And Eli, it wasn't that God stopped speaking it was that Elijah couldn't hear because he was consumed by fear. That's my question in this story. Why? Why did this, how did this happen to Elijah? And that's what sent me into this passage to find out what is it, God, that happened to Elijah and what can that teach me today? So we'll get to that. But Elijah fled to Beersheba. It says, the text says, that was 120 miles uh, south of Mount Carmel, which was about as far as he could get away from Jezebel without leaving the, the country. And there in verse 4, it says, in a depressed state, it doesn't say that in the text, but he was depressed, he prayed that God would take his life. It's enough, Lord. He was having the pity party of the ages. I have sacrificed enough. I've reached my limit. Well, thank God Jesus didn't take that attitude as he faced Calvary. There's never a reason to end your serving of God. Never. Well, psychologist friends of mine have taught me that the root of a lot of depression is anger. And uh, I haven't got time to explain why that's the case, but... I've talked to psychologists, I've talked to psychiatrists, and they verify that. So, Elijah is depressed, which means he must be angry. And who is he angry at? God, right? Isn't it funny how we're, we're too spiritual to admit we're angry at God? 
So what do we do? We transfer our anger at, onto our husband, our wife, our kids, our employer, even our pastor or his wife. God bless them. Because they're representatives of God. If you're mad at your pastor today, you're probably mad at God. But the problem is you can't admit you're mad at God because you can't admit you're, you're mad at your pastor because you think you're, you're right and he's wrong, but you can't take that tack with God, can you? Because God's never wrong. So just examine your heart if there's anger in your heart because probably whatever the anger is, whoever it's directed at, it's probably ultimately an issue you've got with God. And it's never a problem for you to say, Lord, I'm angry with you. God does not is not sitting there with a prescription from his doctor of antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication that when you come to God and say, I'm angry, he's got to pop a few extra pills or else he'll fall off his throne. That's not a problem to God. And let me tell you a secret. God knows that you're angry anyway. So why not just admit it? David didn't have a problem doing that. Psalms are full of it. How long, O oh Lord? How long? Just get it out on the table. I'll say, Lord... I'm angry at you. I know I'm not right to be angry at you, but I am. Now help me. That's honesty. One of the greatest examples of faith in the Bible was the father with the demon-possessed son, and he came to Jesus, and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. That's okay to be in that place because, you know, God can work with that. Okay, so uh, Elijah here is painting himself as a sacrificial servant. That God had failed. It's enough, Lord. I, I've, I've done all this. And after everything that I've done, it still isn't working. I, I, I can't do any more. That was his, he was mad at God because God had not fulfilled his expectations. I'm trying to get to the root of how Elijah got into this predicament because I don't want to fall into it myself. And I don't want you to fall into it. Elijah was mad at God because God had refused to fulfill his expectations. Now, what were his expectations? Okay, we'll get to that in a second. But God is very gracious, and he sends an angel to feed him. And I, I want to ask you the question, you know, we do have friends that have met angels. I never have personally, other than my wife, of course. But, uh, well, that was about as good as my humor gets. Um, but I want to ask you the question, how many times, an angel means a messenger, and I know in the Bible angels are supernatural beings, but I ask you the question, how many times has God sent a messenger to help you when you were ready to give up? Many times, right? Somebody calls, a friend comes by, somebody sends a text to you, I'm thinking of you, you're in my heart, are you okay? God just does that in his mercy toward us. Uh, God has a, a way of meeting us at the screaming point. Or is it only me? So that's where Elijah was. He's lost control. The scenario that he had figured out what, how things worked. You know, I hear the word of God. I do the miracle. That's the problem solved, but it didn't solve the problem. When it doesn't solve the problem, he's got no plan left. But God's always got a plan. Have no, make no mistake about that. 
And so just when you think it's all over, God has a way of reminding you he's still in charge. Because he is. He's sovereign. And I, I believe in a sovereign God. Uh, you know, I've got free will, but God's got more free will than me. I've only got free will because God gave it to me. Uh, I don't want to put my trust in my ability or my responsibility to go out and do things. I want to put my trust in a sovereign God who can do anything. So that's my, uh, that's when I uh, build my life on, that even when I feel I've got no, no, no gas left in the tank, uh, that God does not have that problem, and he will carry me through. So God sends an angel just when everything seems to be over for Elijah, and the angel says, go to Mount Horeb. Now, the interesting thing is that that is another name for Mount Sinai. And here's where the story gets really interesting. Um, Mount Horeb, or Sinai, was 250 more miles from Beersheba. When you're walking, that's, that's quite a ways. But what's significant about this is the journey took Elijah 40 days. That's very significant. Numbers in the Bible are significant. Immediately, this links Elijah with the 40 days and 40 nights Moses spent where? On the very same mountain, 500 years earlier. And the 40 years Israel spent in the wilderness where Mount Sinai was. So 40 is the number of human failure. Israel's had to spend 40 years after their failure to enter the promised land. But 40 is also the number of God's presence because God was with them there. Amidst Elijah's failure, God is about to show up. And he so often shows up in the moment of our failure because failure is nothing more than the gateway to success. So if you've had a failure lately, um, then just hang in there because God's going to do something amazing. Now the wilderness... In the original Exodus, and incidentally also in the replay of the Exodus, which is called the book of Revelation, I can't get into that, although I'm always tempted, but the Exodus is the place of God's protection between the place of spiritual bondage and the place of ultimate deliverance. So the wilderness is the place of God's protection in between darkness and the promised land. And so the story here is about to show us that it's the wilderness, more than Mount Carmel, which turns out to be the place of God's presence for Elijah, just like it was for Moses. Now, never forget the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness. That wasn't an accident that he went to the wilderness and spent 40 days there. Why? Because Jesus succeeded where Israel had failed. Three times in his battle with the devil, Jesus replies to the devil in his testing in the desert by quoting the text of Deuteronomy from the days of Moses. Three times God had given commands to the, to the Israelites in the wilderness. Israel had looked back to the food of Egypt and despised the manna God had sent. But Jesus told the devil, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Israel had tested God at the waters of Meribah and Massah. 
But Jesus said, I will not put the Lord my God to the test. Israel entered into idolatry and made a golden calf, but Jesus told the devil, you will worship the Lord your God and him only. In 40 days, Jesus succeeded in the same surroundings and with the same tests, Israel had taken 40 years to fail. Jesus turned the number 40 from a symbol of human failure to the place of God's victory. And now he enters, calls us to enter in to that victory. So here we are in that very place of human failure, but yet of God's revelation on Mount Sinai where Moses stood, God brings Elijah to this very same place. And there the word of the Lord comes is restored to him, because remember, he hadn't been able to hear it. But it comes as a question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, uh, Elijah was in the wrong place, but in the providence of God, it turns out to be the place that God will meet him, which says to me, even if you miss God, even if you fail, God will still find a place to meet you, because he loves you. So if you screwed up or messed up or whatever you've done this morning, don't be discouraged don't go back and dwell on your victory, but get with the program. If you've treated church as a cruise ship and not a battleship, that's not good. But there's always an answer. Repent. You know what repentance means? It's in Hebrew, the word is shuv, S-H-U-V. And it simply means this. You're walking in one direction and you turn around and walk in the other. So if you've been walking in the wrong direction this morning, all you have to do is turn around. You, you won't get to the, your destination in two seconds. It's just walk in the right direction. Just like I was taking the garbage down the driveway. I had to keep one foot ahead of another. It doesn't matter necessarily how fast you're going, and it doesn't matter how fast you're going compared to the person beside you in your perception anyway. It just matters that you're moving in the right direction. I hope that's an encouragement to somebody this morning. So even if you miss God, God will find a place to meet you because God is more committed to your life than you are. He's more invested in your life than you are. Now, if Elijah had been honest, God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And by the way, God didn't ask the question because he was short of information. God knew perfectly well. But you know why? If you're counseling people, it's sometimes a wise counseling move to ask a question because it draws something out of our heart. Jesus said to the blind man, what do you want me to do for you? Well, Jesus, are you stupid? You know, it's obvious. No, but Jesus wanted the blind man to say, Lord, please heal me. So don't be passive. Engage with God. God's trying to draw something out of Elijah's heart because he wants relationship. So if Elijah had been honest, he would have confessed the truth. Lord, I'm here because I've lost sight of you. I've fallen into fear. I failed to stand up to Jezebel in the confidence that the same God who met me in Mount Carmel would meet me when I'm dealing with Jezebel. But instead of being honest with God, he answered with this self-justifying complaint. Oh, God, look at all that I've done for you. Now you've left me alone. Boo-hoo, and my enemies are trying to kill me. Pathetic, Elijah. 
Well, we, before being too critical of Elijah, the Lord kind of shines a light on, <laughs> you know, how we behaved in the past and think, well, okay. Anyway, through anger and self-pity, Elijah has lost track of the spiritual reality that had controlled his whole life. He's forgotten what God had done in Mount Carmel. He'd forgotten what God had done when God sent a raven into the desert to feed him. Remember that? And if you think that God isn't God, the same God today, I had an apostolic friend in India called John Babu who uh, had eight children and left a very prestigious government position when he got miraculously saved and healed and went off and started planting churches, planted hundreds of churches. And, but he got a lot of persecution and he had eight kids. And I know what that's like because we've got eight kids. And he had no money left and no food to feed them. And he sat in the courtyard of his house and he said, God, what are you going to do? I, I desperately need your help. I haven't even got food left to feed my children. And a raven came. And it landed right in front of him on the ground. And in its beak, it held a gold coin. Deposited it on the ground. And that was the end of his problems. See, God is still the same God today, and he'll meet you, and he'll send his ravens to you, however he wants to provide. But Elijah had forgotten that. He'd forgotten what God had done when he'd raised that child from the dead. He was blaming God for a difficult situation he could not explain, instead of assuming that God, in his faithfulness and sovereignty, still had a plan. He was blaming God for a situation he couldn't explain instead of assuming, in spite of all the circumstances, that God still had a plan. Elijah had allowed Jezebel to turn incredible victory into utter defeat. He believed a lie, and this is at the heart of it. He believed a lie. The lie came in when he heard Jezebel's threats. The lie was the lie that God had failed him. God has never failed you. But Satan will come day by day relentlessly speaking lies to you. That's why Jesus said it's the truth that will set you free. The question is, what further lie made Elijah susceptible to believing something that his entire walk with God should have taught him wasn't true. And I think, and here we get to the heart of it, I think it was this. Elijah was expecting victory to come through the manifestation of power on the mountain. And when that didn't happen, he was lost. Because Elijah's identity worked in strength, but not in weakness. He hadn't found what another man, a few hundred years later, discovered. That God's power is manifested only in our weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Elijah was lost in self-centered navel-gazing. And when all you can see is your own disappointment, you'll put your suffering at the center of the universe, and you'll forget who God is and what he's done for you. So God takes Elijah out of the cave and he stands in a place on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. Now Exodus 33 tells us that God met Moses on Mount Sinai in the cleft of the rock. 
and now he meets Elijah. I can't prove it, but the similarities are so great, I believe he put Elijah in exactly the same place on that mountain that 500 years ago he had placed Moses. And the same thing happens. Three manifestations. The same thing that happened to Moses happens to Elijah. There's three manifestations of the power of God. Earthquake, wind, and fire. Just like Exodus chapter 19. God is in the business of making a point. Because after those three manifestations of power, just like with Moses, something happened. And Elijah knew it. And he had the same response that Moses did. I'm sure that the same cloud and the same glory came as happened with Moses. And Elijah, the text says, just like Moses, covered his face. Because no one can see God and live. And God came in what the English text usually translates as a low whisper. The Hebrew phrase is damamadaka, and it means, Hebrew is a very graphic language, it means a thin silence. A thin silence. And in that moment, God asked Elijah the same question. What are you doing here? Elijah still hasn't learned. He gives God the same answer. If God asks you a question, you answer it. Then he comes back and asks the same question. Don't give him the same wrong answer you did before. So God doesn't even dignify Elijah's complaints with an answer. And neither is God forced to delay putting his plan into operation by Elijah's disobedience. God will move ahead whether you move with him or not. The question is, will you be part of what God is doing? And God responds to Elijah's self-centered inertia, whatever you want to call it. God responds with a list of commands. Elijah is to do three things. Number one, he's to go to Damascus and anoint a man called Hazael, king over Syria. Number two, he's to find a man called Jehu and anoint him king over Israel. And number three, he's to find a man called Elisha and anoint him prophet in his place. God says, get up off your backside and start putting one foot ahead of another and go do these three things. Now, this is the ultimate point of the thin silence. Victory is going to come, but it's going to come not in the way that Elijah had anticipated. It's not going to come through displays of supernatural power, like a Mount Carmel. It's not even going to come through Elijah, the man of power. Elijah's missed his opportunity. The authority he's held is to be handed over to others. Now look, Hazael and Jehu, the first two men that Elijah anoints, will eventually destroy both Ahab and Jezebel. Elisha, the third man he anoints, is going to carry on Elijah's prophetic ministry in a new format, incorporating a school of the prophets and 7,000 other people in Israel who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. But see the faithfulness of God here. Because look at Elijah's three complaints. Now look at Elijah's three things in which he feels that God has failed him. The three lies that he's believed that led him into this place of depression and fear. Number one, Elijah complained that God had stood by while the people had forsaken the covenant. Under Jehu, 
whom he anoints, the covenant is going to be renewed. Number two, Elijah had complained that God had done nothing while Ahab and Jezebel had killed the prophets. Yet by the hand of Hazael and Jehu, those who killed the prophets eventually are going to be killed themselves. They killed, put Ahab and Elijah to death. And number three, Elijah complained, God, you left me alone. But under Elisha, a mighty school of the prophets will arise to replace him. Now, never believe the lie that God has failed you. Victory is going to come, but it may not come in the way you think it will. Never walk out on God. Never give up on God. Never walk away from the call of God in your life because you believed a lie. Don't do it. Press into God when things are tough and find the truth that will set you free. The New Testament teaches us that Elijah is a forerunner of John the Baptist. But Elisha, his name means God saves, is a type of the man whose name means Yahweh saves, Yeshua, Jesus. That's why Elisha is the one who multiplies the loaves to the people, not Elijah. He's a forerunner of the bread of life who did the same thing. Elisha is the one who shows mercy to his enemies. He spares the soldiers who were led into the city. He heals the enemy general, Naaman. Elijah was a one-man band who had to be reminded there was anybody else faithful to God. Elisha was the one who released the anointing of God to the entire prophetic school, which is a forerunner or type of the body of Christ. God is moving on and doing something. And what he teaches us is that true victory ultimately comes in the place of human weakness. And that's the lesson that Elijah had missed. It wasn't at Mount Carmel when Elijah was at his strongest. It was at Mount Sinai when he was at his weakest that the purposes of God ultimately were released upon the earth. Mount Carmel was amazing, but it was only a preliminary victory. See, Jesus understood this, even though his disciples didn't. Jesus performed miracles. John's gospel says they're signs. They point to his true identity. The miracles, just like Mount Carmel, they're amazing, aren't they? But if you don't find Jesus through the miracles, they don't amount to anything. Thousands of people witnessed the miracles of Jesus, but because they didn't follow the miracles to the one to whom the miracles pointed, it didn't do anything for them. Most of the people who were impressed by the miracles walked away because Jesus knew the victory is not going to come through miracles. I believe in miracles as much as anyone, but Jesus knew that's not how the victory comes. In at Gethsemane, he could have called on his father to send legions of angels. That would have been a miracle. But he knew that the purposes of God would not be accomplished by God saving him out of that, but the purposes of God will be released through him hanging in humiliation and defeat on a Roman cross. But hanging on that cross, though no one knew it at the time except Jesus, Jesus Christ was controlling the entire course of history. True victory comes in weakness. God's strength is manifest in weakness. Well, Elijah is a hero to me. He should be to all of us. He stood for righteousness. His life was characterized by extraordinary displays of faith. And God, in the end, honored him 
he got took up to heaven in a cloud of glory. But we do need to learn a lesson from where Elijah failed. God can come in ways that we expect and pray for. Miracles, healings, provision, promotion, everything going right in life. We should pray for those. But those things are not the foundation of our faith. The foundation of our faith is not the miraculous, it's the cross. When the miracles don't happen, or when the things we hope don't come to pass, what do we do then? If you've got a cruise ship mentality, you'll, you'll head for port and look for some better opportunity, but that won't happen either. And you'll live a life of constant disappointment and never enter into what God wants for you. The foundation of our faith is the cross. So when the miracles don't happen, we don't lose heart because we haven't believed the lie that without a constant manifestation of the supernatural and of everything going absolutely right and hunky-dory in our life, that somehow we've lost God or that God has lost us. No. What do we do? We learn from Elijah and from this story. We learn to listen for the whisper. We learn to seek out the thin silence out of which will come the purposes of God for our lives. God calls us to walk in the way of the cross. But the good news is the cross was followed by the resurrection. Now, please listen to this, and I'm just at the end. and Thank you for bearing with me this morning. But please listen to what I'm about to say. It's a constant theme of the Bible that God first gives a person a dream. Then he destroys it. Then he restores it. So that all the glory goes to him. He did it with Abraham. He did it with Jacob. He did it with Moses. He did it with David. Right here he did it with Elijah. He did it with Paul. And most of all, with Jesus. So what do we do when our dream seems to die? In the words of my spiritual father, a man called Dwayne Harder, each of us needs to wrap our dreams and expectations in the burial cloth of Christ and place them in the tomb. That's hard, isn't it? That's Christianity, though. He brings our visions to a place of death before he resurrects them so that he alone gets the glory. So when things don't turn out as you expected, when you run out of hope while you're going down your own driveway, remember the lesson of Elijah. We can feel sorry for ourselves and give up, or we can flee to the place of God's presence and find him there in the thin silence. And then you can know your resurrection is on the way. Let's stand together. Now just take a moment in God's presence, and then I'm going to hand it over to, uh, back over to James. But just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you in this moment out of all that I've said this morning. Allow the Holy Spirit to sow 
seeds of truth into your life. Just take a moment of silence. God may speak to you in that. Now, Father, we recommit ourselves again to serving you in spite of disappointments, in spite of shattered dreams, in spite of places where we thought you'd do something and you didn't. We repent of our anger, but Lord, we know that we can come to you with our anger, and you won't turn us away. You'll be so loving and gracious toward us, just like you were to Elijah. And I pray specifically for those who have had dreams that they feel have fallen to the ground. I pray this morning you'd give confidence that a resurrection is coming. And even if it turns out a little bit different, which it often does from what we expected, we'll look back and say, I'm glad I didn't get what I prayed for, but I got something even better. And Lord, I pray you'd encourage this company of people that the battleship that you see them as, that you all utilize every person, even some that have been sitting here thinking, what have I got to offer? Uh, Lord, that you all enlist every person in your army, that none would grow faint and weary and fall out by, and give up, but Lord, that each one would rise to the calling and destiny that you have for every single one of your children on this planet in this day. And I ask your blessing upon this congregation of people in their service of you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.